I'd like to, uh, I guess, acknowledge that this is uh, the last Sunday of 2020. And many of us might be thinking, thank goodness. I mean, it's been quite a year, hasn't it? It's been extraordinary. Um, And I think um, in many ways... Uh, I'm hoping that this lesson will prove to be a good segue into the into the new year, into 2021. Um, we bring this morning to a conclusion our series in the book of Hebrews, and um, just just to sort of I guess remind us um, uh, the in focusing on chapter 13, the last chapter of the book. I've selected from that context uh, the summary statement, as it were, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. And that's going to be our, um, our, our launching point, if you will, into 2021, into the new year. It'll be an encouragement to us, as it was in the first century, as the, uh, the writer of the letter to Hebrews uh, admonished his audience to remain focused upon Jesus. Just to summarise, uh, really, in, in very brief terms, the, the whole book of Hebrews, um, the writer begins with emphasising that Jesus is a better messenger than the prophets, than the angels, better even than Moses himself. He's a better high priest who initiated a better covenant and a better sacrifice. And in summary, really, best of all is Jesus. That's the writer's point. And you remember we've noted as we've walked through the letter to the Hebrews, it seems in the background you've got this fundamental challenge that that some of these Jews who'd become Christians for whatever reason, and there were probably many reasons, they were faltering in their faith. They were faltering in their commitment to to Jesus and tempted, it seems, to return to Judaism. I want to suggest in chapter 12, um, we had pretty much like a a drawing to a climax of the book, uh, of the letter, Uh, a great cloud of witnesses, the writer of Hebrews mentions, and he, he goes to talk about the faithfulness of Abel, of Enoch, of Noah, Abraham, Moses and Rahab. And then he launches further into a whole long list of what you might call champions and martyrs of faith. And of course all of these pointing to the faithfulness of Christ. And I want to just cause us to stop and reflect for a moment because sometimes we can look at the scriptures and we can think of it as some sort of a mysterious other. As if, you know, I mean, the likes of Abel and Enoch, some of us might not even recognise those names. What, what are they to us? Hopefully others will recognise names like Noah and Abraham and, and Moses. But they lived so long ago, they're so remote from us. But I want to suggest to you that Without too much trouble, we can make a pretty strong connection with people in our own experience in the church. Stan and Thelma Holyoke, and of course I've got in brackets there, Warren. Stan, you may or may not recognise or remember, Stan and Thelma were one of the relative few 
some 50, 60, maybe even 70 years ago now, that tried to steer the conference churches away from the direction that they were heading in. I don't want to go into any detail about that, that, that situation, except to say there were this couple, faithful couple, who were pretty much trying to hold back a tidal wave with probably a handful of other couples countrywide. When I think of the faith of a Noah or an Abraham or a Moses, I think too of the faith of a Stan and Thelma Holyoke. And of course the faith that they passed on to their son Warren and the huge impact that Warren has had upon upon us as a church and many of us as individuals. Tom and Ren's bunt, giants of the faith. You may or may not remember the last time that Steve Collins, uh, Nathan, um, uh, Jack, Terry Lee went over to PNG and they came back reporting upon events surrounding the grief of the brethren, the church in PNG over the death of Tom Bunt. Um, took some of Tom's ashes to be buried over there. The huge impact that Tom had, not just here in Australia, but in as remote a place as PNG. Giants of the faith. People that we can not just remember and acknowledge, but be encouraged by, be incentivised by. Our elderly saints not here this morning because of their fragility and their vulnerability to the COVID threat. But the likes of Sandra, the likes of Yarp and Gertie, countless others who, despite their disabilities, and as we grow older, I know for young people this might be hard to relate to, hard to understand, but as you grow older, through no fault of your own, it gets tough. It begins to hurt. (laughs) Just getting out of bed sometimes is quite an achievement. These faithful brethren overcome all of that pain, all of that difficulty, to be here on a Sunday morning when they possibly can. We ought not take that for granted. We ought to be amazed of their faith and their faithfulness. We ought to recognise and applaud their encouragement, their good example. And of course that leads us to a question, which is always a good question, isn't it, to carry into a new year. What will our legacy of faithfulness be for 2021 and beyond? These are the sort of questions that the writer of Hebrews, if he were to be addressing us today, he would want to challenge us with. He would want to be presenting us with these very thoughts, these very challenges. You think of Abraham, you think of Moses, you think of Stan and Thelma, of Warren, of Tom and Renz, countless other, a cloud of witnesses Be encouraged, be encouraged to be like them. 
Therefore, he concludes in chapter 12, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Take it seriously, says the writer of Hebrews. Worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And that's the thought he's going to carry forward into chapter 13, which we'll be looking at in a moment. Stay the course. Don't give up. Don't go back. In their case, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to what's comfortable. Don't go back to what's much more socially acceptable. You've begun with Jesus. Stay with Jesus. And of course that message is, is, is just as important for us to hear today as it was in this particular church some 2,000 odd years ago. Stay with Jesus. The temptations not to are great and many. I think, I think of young people today. And I think of all of the challenges, all of the temptations that are there. Many, I suspect in many ways greater than, than, than any generation has faced. A world of scepticism. A world that is not just critical, but, but ridiculing of faith, belittling of faith. A world that generally, even if there is the embracing of faith, chooses to embrace faith in a way that is very driven by, at least in the West, consumerism. Do what feels good. Do what you think is right. And you can assume that that's the Spirit of God confirming you in that choice. And our young people here from this pulpit, don't be seduced by that. Don't be drawn back into the world or don't hold on to the world if you've not yet come to Christ. Or if you come to Christ, do it on Christ's terms, not some other denominational agenda. Stay the course. Don't give up. Don't go back. Don't give up on Jesus. So chapter 13 elaborates on this idea of worshipping God acceptably with reverence and awe. But first I want to just very briefly touch on some glimpses that the author gives about himself and his audience that's drawn from the epistle's conclusion. So skipping forward in chapter 13, picking up the narrative in verse 18, the writer says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honourably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released and if he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you 
all. Now, it becomes very evident that the author and his audience were known to each other. This was no stranger. This was no teacher uh, pontificating from afar, as it were. He knew the people that he was writing to and they knew him. There was something personal, a personal investment on the part of the writer and his readers. The author, you'll notice, makes it, emphasises the point, I'm writing with a clear conscience and my intentions, he says, are honourable in offering this brief word of exhortation. And I smile to myself, a brief word of exhortation, we come to after 13 chapters. It's not exactly a brief letter, is it? Um, I kind of feel like uh, sometimes I need to make that justification. It's really just a very short sermon. You just think it's long, but it's not as long as you think. Stay with the message, though. Persevere, endure, listen to what I'm saying is the writer's point. He mentions Timothy, who apparently has just been released, and we're not sure about the circumstances. We're released from prison, maybe, probably, or released from some other obligation. We don't know. But we do know that Timothy, who was an intimate companion of the Apostle Paul, was, is known both to the author and his audience. It sort of links in, for us, some 2,000 years later, links into that little historical element. Here we are in the world of Timothy and Paul and Titus and Barnabas. Here we are in that living legacy, the first century when the church was established by Jesus' apostles. Verse 24 is, is unusual in, in terms of the form of a letter. Um, I'll, I'll read it there. You know, it's, Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Many have suggested that, that what this is indicating is that his audience was estranged from church leaders and others of the Lord's people. Their, the idea would be that their uncertainty that's led to their, 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 their pulling back from Jesus, they're pulling back from the church, has led them maybe, maybe even to the point where they became their own little group, their own little faction, if you will. If not a faction within a, a larger church, maybe a faction, a, a separated group altogether. And you could imagine under those conditions that, that the brethren and the leaders have been trying to reason and appeal to them and a sense of distance, a sense of alienation has set in. And so the writer of the Hebrews, who, who knows them personally, remember, has taken it upon himself to try and put his two bobs worth in, to make his attempt, his appeal, that they might return to the Lord. And in so doing, return to the church leaders, return from the others of the Lord's people. And then he mentions, uh, it's ambiguous, the author is either writing from a location in Italy or to a location in Italy. And especially if it's the latter, if the writer is writing to, addressing Hebrew Christians in Italy, maybe, just maybe, the issue that we know that occurred in the church in Rome Claudius 
for those of you that have been involved in the, uh, the study on Sunday evenings of the book of Romans will remember how Claudius, uh, in response to apparent um, uh, um, rioting among Jews, uh, Suetonius, the Roman historian, puts it as rioting at the instigation of one Crestus, which is almost certainly a refer- reference to Christ. And the picture, I think, would be that, that among the Jewish population in Rome, those Jews that had become Christians had embraced Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. That led to great controversy among the Jews, those who believed, those who didn't believe. And, of course, you know, Jews culturally are a pretty close-knit people. To embrace Jesus in the midst of a, a, a Jewish population that was largely rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, that came at great cost, personal cost. It divided families. It put people's jobs at risk. It put people's reputations at risk. Conversion to Christ for a Jew in the first century was no small matter, no easy decision. Very often it came at great cost. I'm imagining that maybe it's these very Christians, Jewish Christians in Italy, perhaps in Rome itself, that because of their conversion to Christ, and the challenges, even persecutions that follow that, now they're wavering. And so the writer of Hebrews, along with the rest of the brethren and the leaders in the church, appealing, don't give up. Stay the course. Chapter 13, then beginning in verse 1. Remember carrying over the theme, worshipping God acceptably with reverence and awe. Keeping on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Don't have the luxury of time to explore this fully. So we're going to have to be satisfied with really just a summary of what the writer is speaking of here. Keep on loving one another. That's that language, it is a continuous action. Keep on, you've been doing it, keep doing it is the idea. Love one another, love family, love the family of God. Love again, but this time in the form of hospitality, the love of strangers. And the thing that's unique about the love of strangers, it's unconditional. You know, we love family, whether it be our physical family, our spiritual family. We associate with them all of the time. And when we do something, it's almost certain to be reciprocated. But not so with strangers. 
A stranger is a person in whom I have no investment, no real obligation, no consequence if I choose to ignore them and walk the other way. The writer of Hebrews is saying, not so with you, not so for those who worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. We acknowledge one another as precious, as fellow creatures made in the image of God. And therefore, we give the time of day, even to strangers, even if there's no conceivable possibility of them ever being able to return the favour. Forget that, it's unconditional. That's the nature of love among the people of God. And finally, love again, this time living the golden rule or the royal law as James describes it. You treat others how you would want them to treat you, says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your neighbour as yourself, says James in James 2 and verse 8. Notice the the emphasis upon empathy, feeling what they feel and being proactive, not just refraining from evil, but proactively seeking the good of others. If being a good Christian was all simply about refraining from evil, and I mean that's pretty much the the ethic that's very popular in the world, in the West at least, do no harm. Do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm other people. And that's a good ethic. It's certainly better than other things out in the marketplace there. But Christianity takes it to another level. It's not just a matter of refraining from doing wrong, from doing evil. Refrain, yes, but more than that, proactively seek the good of the other. If it was just a matter of doing no wrong, I guess a rock or a stick would make a pretty good Christian. But Jesus calls us to more than that, to proactively doing, to proactively blessing the other. And notice the emphasis of the writer is upon relational terms rather than ritualistic terms. We're talking here about the worship of God. The emphasis is upon relationship, not ritual. We continue, verse 4, Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? When we think of worshipping God, it is a call to moral purity. That is properly directed love of God. Um, I'm using the, the language of Augustine there. Love that is properly directed towards God will be manifested really in, in two ways. Firstly, in sexual relations, which in Christian terms is exclusive to the marriage relationship. 
we can become almost bogged down about trying to define sexual morality, what's right and what's wrong from a biblical perspective, from God's, from God's perspective. I'll narrow it down and it is narrow, very simply to this. Any sexual relations among human beings outside of the context of marriage, understanding, you know, a decade ago I wouldn't have had to throw in this caveat, but, but, but it is necessary today, understanding that when scripture talks about marriage, it only and always anticipates a heterosexual arrangement, a man and a woman coming together as husband and wife. They covenant together. That relationship exclusively is the realm of human sexuality. Any, any sexuality outside of that context is wrong. We don't get caught up on, you know, trying to make a, a hierarchy of sexual sins that this one's worse than that one. Uh, I mean, we become so almost desensitised to things like run-of-the-mill fornication. But, you know, we used to call um, cohabitating, uh, living in sin several decades ago. Now it's just, well, yeah, it's just nothing. It's, it's just whatever. Um, uh, words or concepts like fornication are almost meaningless because it's so prevalent, it's so common, it's so everyday. Any behaviour, any sexual behaviour outside of the context of marriage as God defines it is wrong, pure and simple. It is a, a misdirected love. Um, the second element there, misdirected love of things expressed in greed and discontent. Our relationship with things. The first talks about our relationship with other people. The second speaks about our relationship with things. The one who would worship God resists greed and discontent. Instead, for the one who worships God, there is no place or need for insecurity and fear, regardless of the circumstances. And that's what this whole issue of properly directed love of people and of things is, is, is all about. It's only when we are fearful, when we feel insecure, when we don't trust that God will provide, that we begin to take matters into our own hands. And generally, it's expressed in one of two ways. And this is the classic um, representation, if you will, of ancient idolatry. Idolatry among the pagans of old, and I would hasten to add among the contemporary pagans today, is fundamentally about one of two things. One is sexual immorality and two is materialism. The ancient Canaanites, for example, their practices focused upon sexual immorality. So I guess no surprise that that would be so popular among the people. But also upon materialism. And what I mean by that is this. Baal, for example. Baal was a storm god represented by a bull. And the idea was that if you worship Baal, Baal will reward you by bringing rains for your crops. 
And that doesn't just mean full bellies. That means a surplus. That means prosperity. For the worshipper of God, we don't go down the path of idolatry. We trust God. And in that security, in that love, love which casts out fear, we can face life regardless of the circumstances. Remember your leaders. And this is interesting. In, in, in chapter 13 of Hebrews, the issue of leaders comes up three times. I would suggest that clearly the relationship was strained between the Christians that the writer of Hebrews is addressing and the leaders of the church, wherever that may be. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. I want to focus upon this statement. Jesus Christ, verse 8, is the same yesterday and today and forever. The writer draws attention to the past, the present and the future. The past, yesterday. The gospel, the incarnation, death, resurrection and reign of Christ is at this point in time of the writing a historical event that is accomplished we're probably talking about a second generation of Christians, many of whom, therefore, the older saints, could point back to, as a reference point, if not their own experience, the experience of people that they knew firsthand. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who was crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate, but on the third day was raised again. And we as the church are testimony to that historical truth. Whether we talk about the first or second generation of the church or however many generations we might represent today, that's the foundation upon which the church of God is built. The message was believed the message was lived and the message was passed on. So in the present, today, says the writer of Hebrews, the same faith is passed on from generation to generation. And in the future, forever, ditto, the writer speaks of the once for all finality of Christ's accomplishments. Christ, you remember the whole premise of his book, Jesus is best of all. We're reminded of Jude's statement in Jude 3, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. That's what the writer of Hebrews is drawing their attention to. This is something that happened in the past. Events that are so concrete as a matter of history, you can bet your life upon it. You can invest your life in it. And so it continues the same story, the same challenges, the same benefits today and forever. 
The reference to foods, the altar, the tabernacle, seems to clearly contrast the old covenant, which, as the writer of Hebrews has been arguing, has passed away. You notice he makes reference here to the Day of Atonement. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. And remember the context of the writing, the purpose that the writer of Hebrews has. He's trying to encourage these Jewish Christians not to go back to Judaism. But it's so hard. The opposition is so strong. My parents, my grandparents won't even acknowledge me anymore, much less speak to me. Friends of a lifetime now cross the road when they see me coming. The writer of Hebrews says, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. The road of faith never has been easy. But it's worth hanging in there. Think about Jesus himself. Jesus who was rejected by the Jewish establishment. Jesus who was crucified outside the city, outside the walls of Jerusalem. bearing shame and dishonour. And the writer concludes, we need to be prepared in following Christ to bear the same shame, the same dishonour. It's the annual day of atonement that forms the, the backdrop for his point here. Jesus, the true atoning sacrifice, suffered humiliation and rejection outside the camp, that is, outside the cultic ritual system of Israel. New wine needs new wineskins to contain it. It's important for us to understand that point. The new covenant is not simply tacked on to the old. The new grows out of the old as a caterpillar morphs into a butterfly. Very important that we understand that relationship between the old and new covenant. It's not that there was the old covenant and then God just came up with a, a new or better idea and tacked that on to the old. The old always from the beginning anticipated and prepared the way for the new. The new purposefully grew out of the old. And it's not just an adding on, as it were. It is a a, a telos, a, a reaching a goal, a maturity, a purpose. So to leave the butterfly, to go back to be a caterpillar, really? Really? No. Even though being a butterfly can be hard, the admonition is to break all ties with the religious cultic system of Judaism, which is to invite the same humiliation and rejection suffered by Jesus. But that is bearable because Jerusalem is not our home. We look for a new Jerusalem in a new heaven and a new earth. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. 
And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must keep or give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The leadership thing again, it's very interesting. This then is true worship. And our minds might go back to the context of the Gospel of John in chapter 4, Jesus' explanation about true worship to the Samaritan woman at the well, you'll remember. It's offered through Jesus. True worship is offered through Jesus. And it takes the form of continual sacrifice of praise to God, professing Jesus' name, doing good and sharing. If we had, if, if, if I wasn't running over time, I'd... I'd I don't know, bless you, curse you maybe with a recital of Galatians 2.20. I won't do that because of time. But it captures the sense, the whole of life sense of what it is to live by faith in Jesus Christ, to worship God truthfully. Follow me as I follow Christ. Passing on the apostolic traditions from one generation to the next had some of these Hebrews been giving their church leaders a hard time, as the writer of Hebrews calling them back into the fold. So we conclude with that point, but we're out of time. Um, I want to thank you for your patience. I'm going to conclude with this, I guess, a benediction from the writer of Hebrews from chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.